0: Welcome everybody to my podcast Big Little Small Talk. I'm Megan O'Hara-Sullivan and I love to talk but I also love to listen. If you're new here, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Big Little Small Talk. My guest today is Wayne Fossey. Wayne is an elder in residence in in the office of the Vice-Chancellor at USQ and Wayne and I caught up the other night for a really exciting announcement where there's a $50 million grant awarded to USQ for space research. Wayne, welcome along to Big Little Small Talk. Before we get into who you are and what you are, can you tell me about the the grant out there at USQ?
1: Yeah, jingery Megan. Um, just, I'd just like to start by acknowledging country, the power of the country which we all walk on and we live on. We are sort of part of this country and are lots of people have walked before us, those elders and those people who are emerging and part of the leadership. And you, you know, you're part of that leadership in terms of our council at, at, the, uh, at this present time. Yeah, the Trailblazer program has been focused upon the nature of space. So it sounds rather strange that a regional space, a regional university, uh, creates the leadership for three universities around Australia and world-class research into the development of what is propulsion, what is the materials that hold it all together in order to form the rocketry, uh, enable to launch satellites, and and basically the explosion element, the exciting boys' toy element that I (laughs) say is part of of that. And it's led by um, a local researcher, Peter Schubel, amazing man and absolutely amazing team of young people, but also this particular project involves some input from the federal government a huge input from universities, including USQ, and also the fact that private providers are now involved as well. So everybody has managed to look and trust in the nature of future um, equipment and development around space research.
0: So it's going to mean that USQ is the leading university in Australia in terms of space research on Edge one
1: Without a doubt, and uh, our Vice-Chancellor, uh, Geraldine McKenzie, is, is also on the, on the national board and has been so for, uh, for some time. So it's, it's great to see leadership from a regional university. It's great to see leadership from Toowoomba. And it means that we, it will develop a future precinct, uh, either on the top of the range or below the range at Helidon, for example, uh, in terms of ways in which we can get that. That will employ at least another 50 people, senior researchers from all around Australia. That will just mean that generations of researchers will continue in the space, uh, space game. It's, the key area about space is often uh, getting the, uh, the objects from ground, To space and so this is the area that uh, has been probably neglected most of all and there have been lots of problems and mistakes and huge dangers attached to it so the specialisation of USQ is really into that area and so we have um, we have talked um, with many people uh, over a long period of time about the nature of space and and within an Aboriginal perspective it has a definite sort of understanding where space comes from and how it fits and we also know that space is important for part of our local tourism industry with the dark skies process, which we are involved with for many years as well. So it's important to, not only as my grandfather used to say, um, look up because your feet will find the way and learn about what's above and it's mirrored in our life from what's above it may be the reverse mirroring but it's certainly the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of lot of work around the nature of astronomy there's a lot of work around cultural astronomy that uh, probably needs to be better understood by most Australians.
0: Mm. Now you started off with Jingery, and I did have that written down to say to you that's obviously a, a welcome or a hello. Yeah,
1: it's a hello. Yeah, yeah it's hello a
0: hello. In word. which language or which
1: yeah, my um, my connected language is uh, it's through my my mum's side, and that's Uh Yugambeh uh, is on the Gold Coast, so it's basically from Logan City over the Tweed border into New South Wales. Keeping in mind that the um, eighteen fifty nine border is a you know a construct on a piece of paper. So, um, you know, Australians as such uh, would look at um, something like the border as being very significant, and COVID has recreated (laughs) our border (laughs) understanding. However, it really doesn't exist. It's, um, you know, go go and look for the fence, go and look for the line, and you won't find it. Um, And it it includes, um, you know, an artificiality that we really um, take for granted rather than saying that, you know, this was all Australia Mm -hmm. and uh, this connection didn't exist in Queensland terms until 1859.
0: Right. So I, w- I want to talk about your heritage and your journey to being an elder in residence in the office of the Vice-Chancellor. What does an elder in residence do?
1: Look, thats I, I think I have probably the best role in the world. It's, it's one of those opportunities to look across the entire university and across the three campuses at Springfield, Ipswich and Toowoomba. Uh, it's a role which looks at ways in which we can holistically understand the nature of Indigenous issues, but it's not all about issues. It's not all about negativity. It's really a chance to um, sit with Aboriginal people in our communities, which I've done on many, many occasions, what I call the ten cups of tea, and be able to sit and listen and be able to translate that into futures for our students. Universities are about education and they're also about business in today's world. They really are huge businesses. The University of Southern Queensland is the largest business, for example, in Toowoomba. employs more people and creates more dollars. Uh, And it used to be the Toowoomba Regional Council, but it's not anymore. It far exceeds that sort of situation. And I think the the other relevant part for my job is really the nature of connecting not just communities, but connecting knowledges, knowledges of the past, knowledges of how we can go on to the future. So, uh, you know, I... I'm involved in other things besides US, USQ. My role is a part-time role, uh, but it seems to be like a seven-day-a-week part-time role. Mm. Yeah.
0: So how, how is the participation of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the tertiary sector, not just at USQ?
1: Look, it's, it's a growth area. It's a slow growth. It's a sequential growth over time. Um, i come from a background where you know nobody had an education as such and, and difficulties in family in terms of learning to read and read and write and you know i was the first person within my family structure to go to grade eight and my dad encouraged me then to go to grade 10 and uh, then to grade 12 and then to go to university now you know there were no scholarships for Aboriginal people um, in my time the scholarship was a military scholarship uh, because you um, you managed if you're probably lucky or unlucky to get a what I call a free haircut when you're 20 as part of conscription so it's a different sort of process. I think the number of students uh, are growing I think the awareness of our students across the generational barriers are growing and you and last night I met um, for example people that were first generation again in family in their 30s and so pleased to meet the mums and, you know, the 35-year-old who was able to say, I'm an Aboriginal woman, I'm a person that's studying, I'm now studied, inverted commas, I'll continue to study and I'm now working for the university as well for the last three months. So, you know, we see that generational change and that's that's what we're trying to achieve.
0: Mm, year on year you see the um, increase in the numbers yep. and, um, and there is support there for... Uh, Indigenous kids to c- go to university, bridging courses and the like, isn't there? There yeah. certainly is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know. I know you have had a really interesting journey from. Tell me about being raised in a tin shed with a dirt floor.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, my, my dad came back from World War II and found my mum in Nambour, uh, you know, the, the magic Nambour. And uh, then uh, there was a shortage of timber, a shortage of wool. There was a shortage of accommodation, which I think many people today can really uh, understand the same context. So as a result of that, uh, a gentleman who had lost his son as a pilot during World War II said, right, we would like to create three places for for men who've come back from the war. I've lost my son, but I would really like to create three things out the back. So what, what they did was um, a groups, of, groups of men gathered together. They um, put down ant bed, which was used for tennis courts, uh, as the floor of tennis courts in my time, and uh, they created the tin shed. The uh, tank, the shared house cow across the three individuals, and um, and men were given the chance to come there. So it's an open, you know, open shed. So that was the beginnings of my time on the banks of Petrie Creek in Nambour and. You know, We then moved into a house and uh, eventually dad, uh, dad, my dad built his own house as part of a war service loan after, you know, after being in the war. So it's, it's, I think it's exceptionally important that when you look at people today and we take lots of things for granted and on a cold morning in Toowoomba I really wonder how people lived out in the open or in tents or in houses or in sheds and we still have today the same thing happening. So it's really quite significant, I think, to realise the journeys of our predecessors, whether they be Aboriginal or not, how they've um, how they've lived their lives.
0: So tell me about your Aboriginal heritage. Where did, where did the, the lines there?
1: Yeah, it's it's been one of those things that we've followed, and I followed uh, over time. And uh, some individuals within families are more passionate about it than others. And in what you know, many times it's called the light-skinned black fella, uh, the the person who. Um, Uh, looks many people look at for example for colour at school we were those kids who um, were relatively poor you know we didn't own shoes for many years (laughs) as as an example so we would go to school we would be part of a group of people who would be Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander or um, what in those days was called Kanaka or South Sea Islanders so over the back fence that's what we shared when we we moved into the town as, as proper and so in many of our towns, we have areas that may be redefined by, by where the you know the, the lower socioeconomic classes of individuals, to use that sort of derogatory term, still live. And so ours was called Frog's Hollow. And Frog's Hollow was because we had the frogs and we had the swamp and we had that sort of stuff. And uh, it was a chance to be able to get people from lots of different backgrounds into um, into that area. So you really were brought up amongst Aboriginal people, you were brought up amongst um, TIs, you were brought up amongst the nature of, of South Seas, and uh, they were our friends at schools. My dad's connection uh, through his extended line is through Raglan Station, which is near um, uh, Gladstone. Um, Raglan Station was a massive station um, and very strong uh, white history in terms of uh, Lord Lansborough and o- other people. And mum's connection is through, um, through the Gold Coast, through the Yugambia side, through Bay Desert and um, Bay Desert, you know, the station was the first station so we were part of that sort of line that were brought into that country uh, from uh, New South Wales, from Kempsey. So it's really interesting to look at how your own family follows those journeys over time. The Toowoomba uh, Library, where we are today, does a great job in terms of helping people with their family histories and it's it 's a job where it creates a massive amount of tourism for this city where people come here i 've sat with many families. What I do find is, is that it 's obviously that the Aboriginal histories are far harder to find and far far harder to track in many many ways and it 's not a matter of just simply finding a birth certificate or trying to you know work through it often birth certificates don 't exist or they 're totally totally incorrect and um, and children as we would say in the past have been born under the blanket and uh, it 's been a situation where many, many families you get an intersect by oral history Uh, so it creates inevitable challenges when you look at where you do come from Mm. which sounds a simple question but it it really is quite complex Yes, where
0: are you from? Mm. That's right Well, yesterday we um, went on a wonderful tour and I I think you called it See the black side of
1: Toowoomba? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Toowoomba? yeah. I, I think that upsets some people sometimes. So it can be called the other side of Toowoomba or the black side of Toowoomba. Yeah, yeah. Well, or so. well, the dark side. Yeah. The dark side. We started
0: yeah. um, talking about Tidik, the frog. Can you explain what Tidik, the frog, is? Yeah. So <laughs> for I,
1: th- I think the importance that people in today's world misunderstand is, is often the nature of oral culture. So when nothing is written for you on a sheet of paper, artworks are maintained, but we didn't have any dot, dot paintings here, for example. What we did have, and I've seen it for my own eyes, is if you come above Redwood Park, you'll find a, a cave with paintings in those caves. You go to Maidenwell and you'll find caves with paintings inside those caves. Now, we don't publicly push that because we want to maintain our, our resources. So you list, you're existing in an oral culture... Stories are really important, ancient stories that, that people would see, but they're dreaming stories, and they're learnt by repeating them. So that's how you get your song lines word, so people go along repeating the stories and the songs. So the long journey that leads to Tidic. and uh, what people remember is what has been the story which creates an awareness. And that awareness could be about love, it could be about relationships, it could be about pain, it could be about death, it could be about the most important things that affect us are usually extreme heat, the fires and, and burning and whatever, or e- extreme cold, or really the most important thing is thirst. So Aboriginal camps were established around water bases and it's very important to realise that Twomba Swamp for Example, which we consider to be a negative thing at swamps, mosquitoes, midges, etc., you know, unpleasant, is perceived as being a magic food source because <laughs> everything happens at the swamp, people drink it, the animals drink at the swamp, people come to the swamp uh, to be part of that, and the plants are important. So, within that context, Titic is the frog. It originated, to our knowledge and to my knowledge, with different names, but Titic is a more southern name, and it is the frog on country at the Pittsworth area, which sucks up all the water, that dries the landscape. And in that drying of the landscape, it takes away life for all other animals. And we're talking about a period of time where humans are about to come from above to the earth. And as a result of that, the animals figure out that they've got to make the frog laugh, this gigantic frog. And the kookaburra tries its usual laugh, and another animal tries its laugh. And we can go on to 20 animals, but we're going to distinguish <laughs> the first and the, and the last. Finally, the animal that does make titic laugh are the eels. And if you've seen how eels move across the landscape, the wiggle and the turn, and you can imagine that that can be both vertical and horizontal to be able to do so. So Tidik laughs. Tidik floods the landscape. It comes pouring in one direction towards the Condomine. It comes pouring back towards Toowoomba and it runs down our creeks and it comes gushing all the way through as it does through the mountain passes. And as it runs down, it it, it floods Helidan. It floods Grantham. And we've been there more times than we would hope to imagine in more recent histories. It then floods Ipswich and then it floods Brisbane. So the Tiddick story is the Tiddick story which says, okay, water is important, Flooding has happened before. Drought has happened before. So we need to be aware of all those things. Therefore, value water.
0: Right. Yes. No, um, no room for climate change within that, um, <laughs> within that song line. <laughs> <laughs>
1: climate change is happening, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: just explain the significance of song lines. Because yesterday you said, I always thought that song lines was a, a pathway in a way. Um, something sort of like a, a place where people um, journeyed along, but songlines aren't that, are they?
1: Well, that's that's songlines are many things that, that all join together. So if you think about an oral culture, and, um, and people like me were, for example, were taught to you know you're taught to count, you're taught to do various things, you're taught various names, and you're taught not in a classroom, you're taught separation male and female. That's how we do it now. And we've done it, it's always been done in the past like that. But you walk on country to do so. So your pathways are the pathways that you do walk on country and they're exceptionally important, and they're led by uh, major features. So in the Toowoomba region you have um, you know, Mount Tyson, for example, uh, Mount Kinock as an example. These jump-ups are the traditional markers, and if you have a look uh, across uh, a number, and I've just been to Smoky Mountain, for example, at outside Pittsworth, uh, you'll find there's a the traditional signal site on that. So we know that people talk in the past beyond talking as such, beyond using smoke, using other markers, using tree markers, using all sorts of things to show you direction, to show spaces. And of course we know the stars were an integral part of that. So the song lines are the journeys that link the earth to the sky. So the sky itself in various versions. And it's interesting to me that the Southern Cross played absolutely very, very little (laughs) relevance in terms of um, of, uh, what is really uh, now the most important thing on our flags and our whatevers. Uh, the Southern Cross is very much a European thing that uh, first of all it had to be a cross and that, that sort of idea originated uh, in the difference between when people left the Northern Hemisphere and you know, all of a sudden whether you're in a, a prison hulk or whether you're in a, um, a ship and you're whatever but you're leaving your past behind to go to this strange country to spend months on board a boat to come back to here. So one of the things you took with you was your sort of usually your Christian values and your Christian cross but that's the cross of, of Constantine from the Roman Emperor time and it's quite different to see that all these translations are came. so the Eureka flag put the, the Southern cross but to Aboriginal people you know, we would shrug. <laughs> We'd shrug our way through that so the important thing and you've seen it, it's not just looking at stars and how it affects us it's actually looking at the space between the stars, the blackness so the, the story of the great emu or dinner one, you know, the story of the male emu sitting on the eggs and the seasonal change, all of that sort of stuff has developed in the nature of understanding your sky movement because that affects what you eat, you know, the seasonal structures and seasonal change. You also know when to catch emus if you want eggs versus, versus emus. And then if those of you who have tried to catch them, they're not easy to catch. <laughs> they really aren't. So it's a complicated story of Songline where also it's, it's a process of learning. So uh, in our area, it's, it's, it's a magnificent area and a key site, one of the seven key sites in Australia where people came to the Bunya Mountains. So the Songlines to the Bunya Mountains come through the Carnarvons, they come through the Condamine River, they uh, change course at Dolby up Mile Creek, that mile which means blackfellow, uh, and it's generally a fairly derogatory term. And then they would head out to uh, Jimbo Station, for example. So uh, Mr Bell and others that you've heard of uh, that have been... And Russell, for example. They've been key people who've had thousands upon tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of individuals on their property. And there's recorded history, for example, on Bell's property at Jimbo, of having 15,500 people on that property over a period of that four-month period. So it's, it's astonishing to realise this is a key area in the world it's a key area within Australia and those song lines to the bunyas whether you're coming from the coast or whether you're coming from the south or the north and recorded history also suggests that um, it's by invitation so it's not a matter of you know, going to a festival at Nimbin or something like that it's a matter of being invited on country and message sticks and people walk to deliver those, those invitations via a message stick which is a marking on a piece of timber really And then uh, a conversation was held for people from Rockhampton, that far north, and also people from Thargaminda and Kunnamulla uh, out to the west and recorded history going down to Aora people in Sydney and uh, Port Macquarie as the major groups that came through. So significance of bunyas is songline, songline and more songline, but it's also significant for barter, marriage. Uh, a chance to have a good time, Uh, at times to settle the parliaments of time. You know, it's all these things that are interacting. So things are really not um, precisely defined as we do in in English. They really really have general meanings uh, that are intersecting across a whole range of things.
0: I'll just remind the listeners that they're on 40DB 102.7 FM and we're in our segment called Big Little Small Talk where we get to have lots of big talk, not with small people, but with big people <laughs> and hear their big stories. And my guest today on Big Little Small Talk is Wayne Fossey, who is the elder in residence, amongst other things, out at USQ. So we're just talking about um, the significance of the Bunyas. Um, so how often is it thought that it was a meeting would take place there?
1: Sure. It's, it's a significant thing to realise that, that meetings were held every year. So the year, the year is not defined by you know, 365 days as we, we look at our calendar. There, it's, it's defined as uh, a year based on the movement of the moon and the sun, especially the movement of the moon, so you know the number of moons. But more importantly, it's defined by the nature of plant. So bunyas will, will flower and seed and they will seed and be available in seed from February onwards, usually for a, for a period of four or five weeks. So every three years, a gigantic crop of bunyas happens. So the germination period uh, is exceeded and it's affected by wind and drought and you know, all the other things that affect it, but every three years. So you would find huge movements of people. The intriguing thing is that uh, the people, the large numbers, and and we're talking tens of thousands sometimes, could not fit onto the mountain. So they staged their camps as, as such, as a military staging would happen, at the base of those. And so there was a walkway for the Waka Waka. There was a walkway for the Kabi Kabi coming from the coast. The people from Stradbroke Island came to those areas. We had people from the south who came, had to negotiate getting their way through the main range. And if you were smart, you never really went out to sea in a bark canoe. What you did do was to find your way through the mountains or you took the pathways which connected the south, which is the warwick uh, pittsworth Stanthorpe pathways, to us. And it's intriguing to me that when you think about some things that happen, for example, Barter, which is really important. Uh, we found um, a, a particular rock called Wongawallan jas- Jasper, which is a Jasper gemstone which is used as a, as a sharpening tool and as a, as a pit as a point tool. It's only found on one ridge in Queensland and that's one ridge of Mount Tambourine. So it's a traded good that's also traveled right out west. When you talk to the National Parks people at Girawin, for example, you'll find a, uh, a very um, unusual-shaped um, uh, tomahawk head. It's Papua New Guinean, right? Now, it's been found <laughs> there many, many years ago. So it's obviously that people traded across the Straits for many years and it's ended up being um, you know, discarded or lost or taken uh, and dropped off at, at Girawin. So you'll you'll find... There's an intersection of cultures that have come to areas like the bunyas for festivals. Arguments were settled. Um Dances were carried on, uh, dances were shared, so that's how you shared knowledge about language and other people. And it's interesting that at the site at uh, Highfields, which is what we call Gamanjuru, um, th- one of the symbols, one of the seven totem symbols, is a sea turtle sitting on top of the Toowoomba Range. And it's a major sea turtle, like it's a big part of the rock arrangement, and it has eggs and drop- what looks like droppings, but it's basically <laughs> the eggs of the sea turtle. So that signifies the link between us and the saltwater people away from here, but it especially signifies the link between that, this and Strawberry Island. Because Stradbroke Island, uh, you know, well, until the 1890s was one island, not North and South Stradbroke. Same thing that's happening to Bribey at the moment, being split. So you get these journeys, and those journeys are interconnected. And uh, we have the seven totems out here that represent what six of what you would see as the major land animals, mm-hmm. like kangaroos, etc.
0: Talk some more about kangaroo, because I mean, it is an amazing thing that we have in our region that's quietly sitting there, and that's <laughs> what I guess you're wanting, but talk some more about that.
1: I think Gum and Dura is one of those absolutely fascinating stories. It's the largest rock arrangement in Queensland. It's uh, a forgotten gem, except by many of us, about what happened. I got involved in the 1980s, um, and um, I met the people who were the, oh, 1970s, actually, <laughs> met the people, I'm getting old, I met the people who were the people in those days. So it came from the story, and the the person who's affected uh, by this is still alive and living on the next-door property to Gammajiru at this moment, and she's in her 80s. So as a young woman, um, her dad used to be away working, and she walked down to an area, and she used to sit amongst what she called the Fairy Dell, and the Fairy Dell, eventually, she started to see people and talk to people in in that area. There was no people there. That was their farm. And it was a pretty rough farm, and... uh, what then happened was the, the components of all those stories were told to her dad and she took her dad down and all of a sudden they discovered the, the nature of the rock arrangements. Those rock arrangements were placed there by people. Um, about about 5,400 years of age is the current digs um, but it goes beyond that beyond that time because you hit the glacial period and there's a bit of a glacial mess that occurs with both the climate in our, in our local area. There's a link between the celestial points uh, of Gamanjuri and a lot of these, these Bora sites. It's a male Bora site, so it was male initiation only. It was part of the bunya journey as well. So if you were walking from Kalamulla it might take you eight weeks to nine weeks at least to get from there to, uh, to the bunyas. As a result, people were born and people died on the way. So birthing trees were, were significant. Arrangements to show direction by scar trees, for example, were there. In the meantime, you had to eat, and it depended where you could find water. So all of this is a part of that journey. Men were taken on to, uh, young men were taken on to country. Um, A number of things happened over a period of weeks, and the final uh, part of their ceremony was conducted at Gamanjuruk. So people would stand on a bowl-type structure, which is where it exists, and uh, the bull roarers would keep the women and the children away because the punishment was very severe if you interfered with the nature of that, that initiation. And then they'd be walked through both a borer ring and the, um, the process of circumcision and other things that w- occurred within that pro- program. But you also learnt the significance, and this is the oral culture again standing up, uh, where you were, were told of the, the major seven symbols. And when you think about it, those seven symbols represent animals in our cases, but totems can be plants, they can be clouds, they can be all sorts of things, depending where you are. But if you think about it here, the most amazing thing that people have forgotten, it's so simple, is really to think about the emu because the emu is a very significant animal. Now, as I said, hard to catch, but really Toowoomba has so many examples. I think we have five associated emu creeks. We have emu vale. We have townships <laughs> named after around emus. And it's very significant to realise that there are a plains animal that, that existed, but they're also an extremely common animal on the coast. So when Oxley and Logan both found nets that they thought would catch kangaroos, and and the the one that Logan found was seventy feet, so divide that by three to give you an idea of the dimension. And he actually stole it, which was a a definite no-no. You can imagine how long it'd take to catch a net to make a net. But they were made not to catch kangaroos. Uh, The kangaroos are relatively easier to catch. Uh, but they were made to catch emus because you'd ca- you'd get a group of people to burn country and make a hell of a noise, and that would chase the emus, and you'd chase them and net them at the same time, and then you'd let the females go and the young ones go, and and keep the uh, keep the males and let maybe one or two males go. So it's not it's a principle based on you know non greed. It it really is a principle based on scarcity, and uh,
0: so you like do what it. you need exactly when you need it. Yeah. yeah. So just going back to gum and durip. Yeah, um, yeah. So. These, there's these rock formations in this of the totems. Is
1: that correct? Correct. Yeah. So there's the seven major totems into the into the um, into the ground. We had um, when I first got involved as a, as a young fella. Um, I was involved with the guy Bartholomew from from uh, mm-hmm. uh, Queensland Museum, and he was uh, told by a number of people, including the Jerome family, look, this is really significant. Eventually the person who owned it, uh, who owned the land, inverted commas, in in terms of title, uh, he gave that land to us as, as such and we're still going through the nature of that title. But What's happened, of course, is Toowoomba real estate is now extremely popular and has been for some time, especially Highfields. So what we need to realise is that it's not just gum and Jury, but there's a women's site nearby, which is on private land. There's a birthing site nearby, which is on private land. There's a communal ring, which is um, on, the, on the top of the hill at Highfields, now encroached on by real estate. Uh, so all of those what we would call the general features of the nature of a, of a past time before white uh, civilisation as such has come onto this landscape has been completely changed and what they've been taken over. In many cases, uh, features were, were bulldozed when native title and other events were put through. People were very fearful at landowners that somebody is going to take their land. And that has not occurred at, at all. It's, it's a misinterpretation of the nature of, of what well, you know what is part of the legislation so these sites are significant but this is one of the few sites that has been saved by us as such so it's run by a board I'm on that board um, and it's chaired by a traditional owner um, and, and Shannon does a great job and so does Conrad to look after that the Bowen family have lived on that property and shared that property over time We've used it as a teaching centre for the kids that have come from the schools around Toowoomba. Until COVID times, the year before, I think we had uh, around 5,400 kids visit that site in one year, uh, which is astonishing. So we tried to maintain that with a very, very, very limited budget. And we would also like to sort of expand the nature of the landscape. Um, there were other features as well. And keeping in mind, this knowing the black soils of Toowoomba, <laughs> there still are other features. So in order to, do, uh, to see these particular features, they rested slightly on the top of the soil, but you only need a wet season to let them sink because they're quite heavy. And as a result, they had to be um, touched by very large steel poles, very gel- delicately, um, by a team b- led by Annie Ross from the University of Queensland in the past, in the 80s, uh, to raise them to the top on the exact positions where they were. So they were surveyed and raised uh, so that you can see them more easily oh, in today's I didn't world.
0: know that. Yeah, mm. I'll just remind the listeners that they're on 4 db in our segment called Big Little Small Talk. And we're talking to Uncle Wayne Fossey. Now, Wayne, can you please explain... When someone is to be called uncle or auntie, and is that an appropriate thing for non-Indigenous people, or is it disrespectful not to do that?
1: Sure. Uh, look, I, I think it's it, I think it's important to recognise people as uncle and auntie. You know, that's part of the process. It's it's, it's like that term Mister, uh, Misses. You know, it's it's one of those um, appropriate titles. What is important is that um, the community gives you that title. You don't grab it or take it or you know, steal it from the process, which is part of the discussion sometimes. It's not based necessarily on age, uh, but age is one of those sort of criteria. So the elder concept is based on a person who is the knowledge holder. So that person has been seen by members of community in which they live uh, in order to be able to say, okay, this person can represent us, this person holds past knowledge. And it's basically what uh, many people uh, call the tribe scribe, the person often who's written it or recorded it or done something with it in some particular way, but also can explain it to government, also can explain it to somebody who comes outside, it may be a tourist or whatever. And uh, I've had some very interesting discussions. If you're in Malaysia, for example, uh, the term uncle and auntie is used very commonly for somebody who's old. But it doesn't have a relevance in terms of of, um, in-depth knowledge. But it sort of does. (laughs) It it really is not quite as defined.
0: Now, you are an an exceptional guest and you're a good storyteller. Uh, One of the great stories that you told me yesterday, and we went up to Stena Street because... I was completely surprised, but that is the highest point in Toowoomba. So <laughs> what is the significance of Stennis Street to Aboriginal people? I,
1: th- I think it's very significant that what we do... Is is have a you know close their eyes and have a different think about what Toowoomba would look like in the past. So we commonly look to the west and we see the grass landscapes, which are important, and they were burnt landscapes. So today, for example, out at Gum and Jury, we're we're doing a burn fire workshop for farmers and graziers. There's never a question. Not just because Farm Fest is on, we've got to fight them away with sticks. Well, not not fire sticks, but certainly uh, it's important to realise that they they they're getting it. Many many people understand it. It's important to realise that Stennis Street, being the highest point, it's actually higher than lofty when you when you sort of look at it in in a, in a realistic topo point. So Stenner Street had water, Street, uh, sorry, Stenner Street had height and it was able to be used as a campsite. It was very, very reliable. So Kearney Springs was on the other side or the, the springs and uh, those of you that have been to the Springs uh, Garden Centre or the cafe will know that, you know, that spring leaks through <laughs> summer and winter uh, across that landscape and it's exceptionally important to realise you need water. So on the other side of that, that um, high point... Many people lived, and there's a photograph that we have from the uh, 18, late 1880s that uh, has, shows the family, a large family group, a large family gathering. Go down the bottom as you're heading towards uh, Gavin Bar uh, School and you'll suddenly find that the campsite there was about 50 people. Now, we have modified, and there's photos to, to sh- even show that in modern days. So families like the, um, like the Stenners uh, moved across this landscape and also down into Flagstone Creek, uh, you know, uh, Rob, for example, a re- recent relative of that, recently owned the, the barn down the bottom, uh, five generations into this landscape. And, uh, you know, it came to me um, a number of years back, say eight years ago, with objects which were Tomahawk's, you know, he he arrived with, and he's a big man, he (laughs) arrived with very strong arms and many Anzac biscuit tins from the 1920s and 30s. And I thought he was actually showing me the power of a biscuit tin, Uh, but inside them were Tomahawk heads collected by his great... Great, I think it's his great great grandfather. So we're we're talking about then. Can you age them and which and, and have a look and where did some of these objects come from? And it's interesting that the majority were traded objects. So they came from the rock itself comes from New South Wales or so the rock comes from North Queensland. And um, it's it's very significant to realise they were collected by a relative who was farming yeah, in, yeah. in the in the valley of Flagstone.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, tell me about Mount Lofty being a burial ground and why you have found more. Femurs then, or femurs last longer than some
1: other body. <laughs> yeah. It, there's, there's lots of stories um, around deaths and, uh, death and burials. But, um, and what, what you'll find is that, that um, very often here, and it, it's a point which is not understood by many people, and I can show people one in our area. Trees, big boughs of trees, uh, are now, which are now quite high in the tree, became woven platforms. And those were been platforms when people had, been, had, had died, had passed, were placed on those platforms and uh, were, were dried. And often after a period of drying they were taken and wrapped into a much smaller component, wrapped in stringy bark or on the case wrapped in paper bark and sometimes here wrapped in paper bark as well. And they were carried to certain locations. So the caves at Redwood Park, um, above Redwood Park, along the ridges at uh, Kabbalah, those caves, the caves at um, Bingo Mountain, at uh, Crow's Nest. You know, we forget about all those, those locations. The significance, I think, of um, those burial sites is really amazing. So Mount Lofty was one of those, which uh, in the stories that were around, including my grandfather's time, even talked about the past there. It's a place that we don't like to go. A place we don't want to go it's a dead zone more, yes that's right why do you find more femurs than other
0: bones
1: yeah so when they construct constructing Mount lofty and for the high school um the, a number of um, a number of bones were found and they were femurs uh, the reason is the density of the bone itself and it, it, it's one of those bones and our body it's the biggest bone in your bodies but it's basically one of those bones that stands the, the test of time and so there, there's these there's many stories. Uh, I've been in, as a 17-year-old, I was involved in um, the, res, re, the resuming of bodies on the largest um, burial site that we've yet found in Australia, which is on the Gold Coast, which is at Burley Heads, and people don't realise. So in the second swale June, behind the beach, um, a gentleman on the Gold Coast, Bruce Small, had been removing for many, many years the sand dunes with the bodies attached, um, placing the dirt within the the, um, the giant cement mixers mixing all the soil and bones together and selling it on the Gold Coast for compost so our, um, the bones of Eugenia people have been spread widely upon the Gold Coast across the canal estates because Bruce was building his, um, his canal estates and it wasn't until a human head appeared uh, to be sold on the counter of the uh, of a Gold Coast hotel uh, that the, a local policeman happened, a sergeant police happened to be sitting there, that all of a sudden we found out where all the rest of these locations were.
0: Mm, I can't imagine spiritually how disturbing that would be mm. to, I mean, for any culture. <laughs> anyone anywhere. Now my time is scooting away <laughs> on me as per <laughs> usual. Um, I'm going to ask you a, a couple of questions, a bit of left field. Wayne, Uncle Wayne, hmm. if you could do anything illegal without getting caught, what would you do?
1: Look, I, I, I think I'd really, really like to break, break into a major medical uh, location and spread the, the, the hidden knowledge which is held by pharmaceutical companies around the world. <laughs> uh, many of them are, uh, have begged, begged and stolen our, our products and gum and, gum and jewellery uh, reflects the nature of those products and medicinal things. Um, you know The importance of Gumby Gumby has just been discovered. So we've just successfully repulsed an American invasion to take over that particular product. Um, and Gumby Gumby, as many people w- would see it, uh, it tastes revolting. I won't tell you what it tastes like, but uh, <laughs> it's a very definite description in their world. However, it's a great cancer agent, it's a great many agent but there are many agents like that and there are many parts of our research which are not shared because they become part of commercial interests and it's, uh, we can't af- the general public, us, really can't afford the nature of medical knowledge sometimes. Oh,
0: I love that answer. It, uh, you know, I've, I've not ever had an answer like that <laughs> before. <laughs> it's just terrific. <laughs> What about if you could, uh, I might know the answer oh, no, I won't say that I might know the answer if you could carry one type of food in your pocket what would it be?
1: Yeah look I, I, would, I would carry bunion nuts I it, knew it was <laughs> <a> bunion nuts <laughs> Yeah I mean it, it's, it's very tempting to say a Mars bar but it, it oh, really no no, no the long term the long term survivability of somebody with a bunion nut you know the incredible uh, amount of carbohydrate incredible amount of minerals the opportunity to have a complex carbohydrate in your, in your pocket that, that's there uh, that you can roast that you can eat raw that you can uh, make into scones these days you can do all sorts of things, yeah, and you make into ice cream, you know, it's it, it's it's a how how good are we today? I'm I mean I've I've made a magnificent pesto in the past with prawns based on bunyanut. You know, it, yeah it's incredibly versatile, Yeah, I did have practice. one lady
0: once who said she'd carry fruitcake, but I think um, I
1: think <laughs> bunyanut
0: surpasses that for as an answer. Wayne, do you think that your priorities have changed since when you were younger?
1: Uh, look, I, I think definitely. I was always brought up as a, you know, what I would call a, a person interested in the environment and a person who observes the real world, people as being part of that real world. Uh, so uh, that has never changed within me. But I think as the older you get, there is an urgency to actually make sure that the things that I take for granted are not seen and, and heard by others and so you know for example the power of the Bunya story is is an unbelievable story i can't imagine for somebody walking walking for many months in a year on a three-year cycle to, uh, to go and have a feed at somebody's, somebody's location. But it's far more than that. It's, it's the cultural, social, emotional. Uh, it's a chance to sort out everything, and it's part of your wellness. And it's also a chance to get a wife or a husband. It's all, also all those magnificent things that happen. So um, I think over time I, I've learnt that probably sharing knowledge rather than sitting on knowledge, as we say, is more important.
0: Mm. So do you think that when you were younger... You didn't share knowledge so much or...?
1: No, look, I, I was probably in my family what I'd call the tribe scribe. So I shared a, a, you know, a bedroom often with my grandfather during the wintertime. He came to live with us for many months. And, uh, you know, um, a, a man who was deaf and a man who been had a fairly traumatic um, life as a young man As a result of that, I wrote things down and I've still got those written records, which are now, all of a sudden, they've become live records instead of scraps of paper in the bottom of a filing cabinet. Uh, So, yeah, you come back and all of a sudden you you have recollections of your grandfather, but you also have recollections. Wow, this this actually is important. Um, Oh,
0: and also (laughs) I suppose it takes you back to your 13-year-old self or however old you were. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I guess that sort of is a natural um, segue into my next question, which is, what scares you most about your future?
1: Look, I, I think for most of us, and, and me included, you know, health is health is a major thing. So, you know, I, I have a n- number of major medical issues which I've tackled, and. Uh, which includes you know, le- leukaemia in my case, prostate cancer, you know, multiple surgeries, uh, all sorts of things. And you, you need to make a decision sometimes. And I've been uh, nine weeks from terminal, so I really know uh, what it's like to sit on the edge and watch. And I, I think those sort of decisions, that many of us do, first of all, males need to talk about it uh, and look at the issues. But you also need to sort of say to yourself, you know, do I really want to be here or do I not? And I made a very definite decision that I wanted to be here. And uh, you know, and, and a life on earth is uh, is a really uh, a shared journey. And mm. It's not just your journey. It's it's the shared journey by all those mm. that you come into contact. So the, um, I think it is very important. The of
0: pointing the bone at yourself is an Aboriginal. Yeah. Um, and it, just quickly explain
1: that. I, I think there's a there's an incredible power in our brain that we haven't tackled. So, in, often in what what I was always told many many years ago was we have two sources of energy. One is our brain. So when our brain dies, our body is not dead. What we do do, and it, we all know this, we have another which sits above our gut. So our gut instinct, which is now, and in Chinese it's called qi, and it's, it has a whole range of uh, things across the world. It's a, it's a very significant thing. So you know that your, your brain doesn't tell you not to lift up that piece of tin because there could be something in it. Your experience sometimes doesn't even tell you that. But you get that feeling before you lift up that piece of tin on the ground that's been sitting there for three months... Maybe there's something under that. Maybe there's a snake <laughs> under
0: there. But just in terms of pointing the bone... I yeah, okay,
1: pointing the bone's one of those things. Where the, Sorry, <laughs> the power of the brain and the power of that. So there's this idea of, of the, the stomach being powerful, the stomach having its own energy and power like a brain, uh, and the concept of the, the bone being withdrawn from the stomach of the Western people is, is there. So that... that um, uh, and there are many stories about how it's done. So, you know, is it the quick of hand? Is it, is it the whatever? Is it a real bone? But we also know that if we believe something, and that's what I said about myself, you know, if you believe that you want to be here, if you believe that you want to be well, if you believe that you want to have an influence on things, it's, it's time to get out and do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Get
0: out to the universe. I love mm. it. All right. Now, this is probably um, inappropriate Your favourite royal now. I always tell people (laughs) it doesn't doesn't have to be English. They don't have to be English. They don't even have to be living. Your favourite royal, Uncle Wayne.
1: Look, it's definitely not Prince Charles. But um, look, despite the colonial history of this country, nobody could uh, really deny the power of the Queen in the current Jubilee year and and, uh, how somebody who has learnt what we've all learnt, how complex their families are, how, complex, how um, complex our lives are when you're dealing with people and countries and individuals. So I'm talking about on-country and looking at different clan groups and language groups. Um, yeah, there, there wasn't an Aboriginal king or queen for really good reason here. So we had a few people who united the tribes like old Moppy Moppy here, but th- they didn't act as king or queen. Maltagra didn't act as a king or a king to this landscape what you do have is the power of, the, of the, the monarchy. Now, I'm certainly a Republican, but the reality is uh, you've got to admire somebody who has lived to that age, who has had that incredible influence. Uh, I'd really like to take her her on country uh, and sit her in the back of my car to be able to you know, see the other side of Toowoomba. But I, I think you can't deny the power of the individual.
0: And I um, wish we had more time to talk about Maltugra, um and um, Mirway, the uh, tabletop, as people know it. But we're running out of time, unfortunately. Uncle Wayne, are you a dancing man? Is there a song that can't keep you off the dance floor?
1: I, that's a really good question. Uh, and uh, look, I, I think all of those things reflect the nature of how we move and how our heart and that syncopated rhythm works. Uh, I'm not a great dancer, but I think it's very hard to sit back and not dance to the Macarena, uh, which is really uh, something that creates movement in everybody's body regardless of what the culture is. And I've watched many times the students in my schools uh, who are kids, uh, you know, various generations get up to a Macarena where they won't get up to anything else. <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually part of that group, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. What
0: about traditional dance? Are you, are you, when Look, you I- hear that- those drums or the yeah yeah
1: and I, I think the the thing that's so often forgotten is the power of your heart. It's that beat of your heart, that syncopated rhythm that we have. The power exists within us, and for many many reasons, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, and uh, it's part of your own well-being, that you know that you need to move. So you know those of you, and I play the guitar and various things. And you know we were taught to play ukuleles and guitars and banjos and stuff as kids. So dad used to make them, right? So it was it was like it wasn't a compulsory activity but it's a great activity so you learn to tap your right foot I'm right-handed you know all of a sudden you, you learn about beat and movement and regardless we're never brought up with didgeridoos which is the current generation of mm-hmm. our kids mm-hmm. but those sort of things I think really create within us what is our natural resonance that exists within us and we realize the power of music and song and beat and dance as being one of those health um, elements. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, Zumba's not easy. <laughs> so <laughs> why would you do it if you didn't know it's going to make <laughs> a change right, in your world? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, it's releasing mm. all those endorphins every time you, you're singing or you're dancing. Yeah. But for you, it's the Macarena.
1: Look, I think it is, yeah. yeah. Look, I really do. The yeah. Macarena. <laughs> well, well, we might <laughs> a have a little bit of the Macarena.
0: <laughs> Uncle Wayne, it's been such a joy talking to you today. Uh, I always say that I, I wish I had another hour, but I, I think I need another <laughs> four, five, six hours to hear all the stories that you've got as the tribe scribe. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been a real honour to have you on Big Little Small Talk today.
1: Thank you, Megan. Yeah, it's good fun. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me on Big Little Small Talk. I hope you can make the time to join me next week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app.